Uh, tonight I want to talk about President Trump and Russia. No, I'm, just, uh, I'm just kidding. But what if I told you that you could be influential in all of that? You might say, no, there's no way. Uh, I don't live in Washington. I don't swim in that circle. Uh, at best, I watch the news. I interact with it. I read online. I interact with it. I talk about it with friends. But there's no way that I could be influential. But what if you could? Um, there's thousands and thousands of people down in the med center in the hospital right now. Some of them life or death. What if I told you you could be influential in that? Most of us didn't go to med school. We didn't go to nursing school. We don't have some kind of chaplaincy program that we're a part of. But what if you could be influential there? What I want to suggest tonight is that there is not one thing that happens in this world in which you cannot have influence through prayer in Jesus' name. There's nothing that happens, whether we read about it in the news, whether we hear about it, that you can't play a role in its outcome. That's how powerful and influential prayer is. A few years back, I got invited to a prayer breakfast, 6 a.m. in the morning. I don't know why we have prayer breakfast at 6 a.m. in the morning. I, I think churches uh, say to themselves, uh, when would no one want to come to this thing? Let's plan it for then. <laughs> but I got invited. I, I showed up, met a friend. Um, for the first 10 minutes or so, we were mingling around, kind of waiting for everything to start. And then finally, they served breakfast. It was buffet style, so go and get your own food. We sat at some round tables, some of the people we knew, some of the people we didn't know. So it was that nice balance of not awkward, but kind of awkward con- conversation. That was 30 minutes uh, of the eating breakfast. Then someone got up, welcomed us to the prayer breakfast, introduced the speaker for the morning. Uh, that person got up and spoke, gave a great message. Uh, but I'm watching my, my watch to, to see... You know how much longer we're going to be here because the message is still going. They said it was going to end at seven o'clock, just an hour, but I don't see any way that that's going to happen because we haven't even prayed yet. Uh, the person gets done speaking. The person who introduced that person got back up, thanked us for coming, then prayed and then dismissed us. So it was a prayer breakfast without the prayer. It was just a breakfast that we went to at 6 a.m. And what I want to suggest to you tonight, or really lay on the table for you to think about is what is a church without prayer? What is a church without prayer? Acts chapter 12 reintroduces us to Herod. Uh, He's the grandson of Herod the Great, the Herod from the Christmas stories. Uh, He had a problem with public image. See, his grandfather had become the king of Israel, but really wasn't the king of Israel. The Roman government was ruling the world at the time. They tapped him on the shoulder and said, we want you to be a regional king. The only power that you have, the only authority that you have, you're borrowing from us. And so Herod and then his sons and then his grandsons are really just Roman puppets. And people didn't like him very much. So he was always trying to earn goodwill with the people of Israel. And so he set his sights on persecuting Christians as a way to get that goodwill. Jesus has been resurrected and ascended into heaven and people in Jerusalem hated Jesus, but they especially hated Jesus's followers after Jesus was gone. So it says that he arrested James and had him executed. Remember, Jesus had hundreds, if not thousands of disciples, but within that circle, he had another circle of the 12. That's the ones that we're familiar with. And even inside that circle of 12, he had a smaller circle of three, Peter, James 
and John. And James has been arrested and now he's been executed. And the people of Jerusalem go nuts. They are so happy that Herod has done this. And so being the insecure person he is, he says, well, I'm going to do that again. This time he arrests Peter. Uh, But he arrests him during the holiday of the Passover. So he can't execute him during this high holiday. So he just throws him into prison, keeps him under lock and key, well guarded, criminal number one. And he's going to be executed as soon as the holiday is over. Meanwhile, the church in Jerusalem begins to pray for Peter's release. In the middle of the night or sometime in the evening, an angel appears to Peter. Peter's been asleep. He thinks that he's having a dream or a vision. The chains fall off Peter's wrists and and legs. The two soldiers that are sandwiching Peter, uh, they don't notice that he gets up. The cell door supernaturally is open for Peter and the angel. They walk out. The two guards stationed outside the door don't notice that Peter is leaving. He weaves in and out of the prison. No one notices him. They get to the exterior wall of interior Jerusalem. The iron gate miraculously opens. And now Peter is outside the city of Jerusalem. Finally, he realizes that this is happening in real life. This isn't a vision. This isn't a dream. And he goes and finds 50 or 60 people gathered to pray for him at a woman named Mary's house. He goes and knocks on the door. A young woman named Rhoda kind of peeks out. Remember, Herod is arresting the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And so even though the people praying aren't really those kind of leaders, they're still underground a little bit. She peeks out to see what's going on, recognizes Peter in her excitement, does doesn't let him in, goes back into the group praying and says to them, Peter is outside. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you know exactly what happened. They said, no, nah, he's not outside. <laughs> she says, no, for real, he, he's outside. Their theory is, is that his guardian angel is the one outside. And uh, at the time in Judaism, they believed everybody had a guardian angel and that your guardian angel could look like you. So that's their theory. They are praying for Peter's release. Peter is released and yet they don't believe it. They believe the more likely thing is that an angel is outside who just happens to look like Peter. (laughs) Rhoda goes back out, lets Peter in. They're blown away, amazed. He speaks to them for a while and then he goes back underground to hide from Herod. And I want us to look at verse five to focus our sights on tonight of Acts chapter 12. It says, while Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. While Peter was in prison, while That's really the pattern. That's the formula for our prayer. While fill in the blank, the church prayed fervently for him, her, them, this. While cancer was on the table, the church prayed fervently. While he was jobless, the church prayed fervently. While their marriage was under stress, the church prayed fervently. While they were battling infertility, the church prayed fervently for them. While they were struggling for direction, the church prayed fervently. While they were sick, the church prayed fervently. This is the pattern the Jerusalem church was taking. While Peter was kept in prison, they prayed fervently for him. The church at the time was about 5,000 strong. It started with just 120 Jesus followers in Acts chapter 12, but by 
or Acts chapter 1, but by chapter 12, around 5,000. Obviously, not all 5,000 are gathered in Mary's house that night. So probably just 50 or 60, as many people as she could fit in their home. And they're praying for Peter's release. Now, I believe that it wasn't just this one home, that it wasn't just the 50 most committed people who had gathered to pray that evening, but homes all out throughout Jerusalem was, were filled with Christians who were praying for Peter's release. Because the Jerusalem church was committed to prayer. When you read Acts chapter 1 through verse 12, they do a lot of things. They gather together to break bread and eat and fellowship with one another to listen to the apostles, teach the gospel. But they always pray. In fact, for a while, they were going to the temple every day to pray in Jesus' name. They were committed to prayer. And more than just committed to prayer, they were committed to costly prayer. We don't know exactly when Peter was released and they were praying. We know it was probably in the evening, at least, because Peter was asleep when the angel came to him. It could have been the middle of the night. Whatever time they were gathered to pray, you can know that it was not convenient. Because prayer and convenience rarely cross paths. I'll say that again. Prayer and convenience rarely cross paths. And yet that's what so many of us are waiting on. We're waiting for a time in which it would be convenient to pray and we would want to pray. We expect that there will be a day in the middle of us just minding our own business, living our life, doing the same things that we do every single day. Where suddenly, even though this has never happened in the history of our lives, we will wake up with an incredible urge to pray. And we then from that time on will be the kind of people who pray. What we're doing is we're waiting for convenience and prayer to overlap. And the truth is, is that's not going to happen. That's why we have to be committed to costly prayer like the Jerusalem church. That we would say, you know what, this need, our faith is big enough to motivate us to do the thing that maybe we really don't want to do at this moment. It is always easier to watch Netflix than to pray. It's always easier to cruise Instagram than to pray. Have you ever been praying and then suddenly you need to check Twitter? You haven't been on there in quite some time because it's a hot mess. But just in the middle of prayer, you are drawn to check it. Because it's always easier to do something else than to pray. But the Jerusalem church was committed to costly prayer. They were also persistent in their prayer. As I mentioned, this is what they did. They prayed. And I don't think this is the first time that they gathered in the middle of the night to pray for something really important. Most of us are avoiding situations in our life in which persistent prayer would be required. We're such a fast fix society that we think if if this can't be resolved quickly, then I'm just not going to care about it. But we need persistent prayer because Jesus told us that that's, that's real prayer. He says, keep on asking, keep on searching, keep on knocking. Jesus has tied together persistence and prayer. I've been thinking a lot about Hurricane Harvey because we're coming up on the one year mark. I don't feel like God answered any of my prayers leading up to Hurricane Harvey. Remember, because we were all praying that the forecast wouldn't be true, that it wouldn't hit Houston. We were praying God let it go around Houston, which, you know, It's really selfish because what we're praying is God, let it hit them and not us. You know, like let it go to Louisiana. They're fine. They'll be fine. You know, they're used to it. You know, there's not as many of them over there. But we're not thinking about that when we're praying. We're just asking for it to to miss Houston. But it didn't. It came straight here. So I started praying, God, let it move quickly. 
Of course, you remember it didn't move quickly. In fact, it stopped. I felt like it stopped right over Houston at the time that I prayed, let it move quickly. And then I started praying, don't let it rain, you know, a lot. I know it's, they're forecasting a lot of rain and it could be dangerous, but just miraculously in the power of Jesus' name, don't let it rain. Just walls of water coming down from the sky. Parts of Houston start to flood. God, please don't let any Bayou City member uh, have their house flooded. I pray in the name of Jesus that no water would enter any Bayou City home. And like literally 30 seconds later, I got a text message with one, two, three, four, five, ten families in that moment who had water in their house. God, please don't let it be devastating damage. Let it be minimal damage, minimal water in their home, total destruction in a lot of homes. And right after that, we got to work. You, you remember, maybe remember that we were gathering together when the sun was coming up, getting tools in our hands, headed into homes throughout our city. Some people we knew, some people in our family, some total strangers, cleaning those, hand, uh, those homes out, getting the mud out, the trim out, the floor out so that it could dry out and they could get back in there in Jesus' name. And then we'd come back each night and have dinner together. Worked hard. All day, every day in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. You know, I think it's ironic that God didn't answer any of my short-term prayers, but he answered a lot of my long-term prayers because we've been praying for seven plus years that we'd be the kind of church that could love Houston well. That we could, we could serve our city in Jesus' name and when they needed us most, we would be there for them. And you may be in that moment where you feel like your short-term prayers are just being rejected by heaven. But it may be that God is just in his patience waiting, those short, waiting for those short-term prayers to transition into long-term prayers. And he's not answering them yet, but he will. The Jerusalem church was committed to the while. While Peter was kept in prison. They prayed fervently to God for him. They prayed fervently Last week, Amanda and Jackson, our 12-year-old son, went and saw a movie. Happened to be the IMAX showing because that was the convenient time. I don't know if you're an IMAX fan, but it's essentially the best possible experience, or at least they charge the most because they're saying that it's the best possible experience, the biggest screen, best resolution, best sound system. And so we went and saw our movie. It wasn't incredibly crowded, and so we were sitting in three seats and then a few empty seats, and then there was a guy who had come to see the movie by himself and no judgment for me because I go and see movies by myself. I will continue to see movies by myself. I don't think that's weird. You can't talk at the movie anyway, so you might as well go by yourself. And so he's there, must be a big fan of the movie that we're watching. I did judge him a little bit though. Jesus says don't judge, but I was judging a little bit because right after the movie started, he fell asleep. Which I totally understand if your spouse has dragged you to the movie or your girlfriend has dragged you to the movie, you didn't want to see it. But he came to the movie by himself. He paid the premium price to fall asleep. Just go home, turn down the lights, pop in a DVD. It's much cheaper. I think those saints who have gone on before us already transitioned fully into the kingdom of God, if they could turn around and see us, they would say the same thing about us in prayer. Why? When you have the best possible experience available to you, are you spacing out and zoning out and quote unquote falling asleep? You have this incredible resource at your disposal, but somehow when we pray, we have no attention span. We're easily distracted. We space out and zone out. I remember a season in my life in which I would come to church so tired 
Even though my life was not hard at the time, I would come to church so tired that I would try to take a cat nap in between the pastor's sermon and that final song. You know that little prayer that pastors pray, which I'm sure is meaningful, but somehow the band magically appears back onto the stage when they say am. I would try to get a little cat nap in that short prayer because my pastor would make that pretty long. And that's what we do in prayer. That's what the disciples did. At the eve of Jesus' arrest, they are sleeping when he is wrestling. But the Jerusalem church, when they showed up to pray for Peter, they weren't spaced out and zoned out. They were focused. They were praying fervently. That same word fervent is used to describe Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he's so intense that he's sweating drops of blood. It literally means to stretch, to reach. Some of us are getting a little bit older. Stretching used to be easier. There's a point of stretching where it's fine, but then you reach a little bit further and it starts to hurt. That's fervency. Bless me, bless them, help them, be with them. Those are prayers that don't require any stretching. Fervent prayers require a little pain. It's not a spa, it's a war zone. It's not lackadaisical, it's intentional. Church of God prayed fervently for him. Like I said, most of us are trying to live lives in which we don't need prayer because we're able to manage everything because everything goes well for us. But here's a question that I want to ask you. If there is something that you can do that doesn't require prayer, is it really worth doing? If you could do it without prayer, is it worth your giftedness? Is it worth the investment that God has made in you? Is it worth the time That God has graciously given you this week? Is it worth the resources that he's trusted you with? If you could do it without prayer, is it really worth doing? While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. Matthew chapter 7. Familiar words of Jesus. Verse nine, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? him? Jesus says, listen, parents, you know who you are. You know how selfish you can be. You know how lazy you can be in your parenting, but still you know how to give good gifts to your children. So how much more will your father in heaven know how to give good gifts to his children? But this is Satan's great lie that we are better parents than God is. That we're more willing on behalf of our children than he is willing on our behalf. That somehow we are more gracious to those who are entrusted to us than he is gracious to those who are entrusted to him. But it's not true. That's why many of us don't pray is because we're fine with the shallow prayers. Be with them, bless them, help them. But those reaching prayers, those war zone prayers, well, we've been in the war zone before. We've thrown ourselves out there. We really needed God to come through for us and he did not come and we feel burned. And so we're hesitant in reaching back out in that fervent way. But I love in Acts chapter 12, it is the appropriate mix for followers of Jesus of life-altering loss and miraculous rescue. The chapter begins with James being 
arrested and executed. And do you not think that the same church that gathered to pray in the middle of the night for Peter also gathered to pray for James? But when they gathered to pray for James, there was no miraculous rescue. And so it could be that they could have said to God when Peter was arrested, you know, we just did this. We just were here in this home, praying with everything in us, believing with everything in us, asking in Jesus' name, trying to string all the words in the right way so we can maybe get the formula of power and answered prayer. And God, you didn't, you didn't answer us. You didn't give us the thing that we're needing. And so maybe I'm going to pray for Peter, but I'm not going to pray in the same way. I can't just put myself out there again. I can't be disappointed again. But all of us will experience life-altering loss. Most of us have already. Most of us will again. But as followers of Jesus, we cannot let life-altering loss prevent us from believing in future miraculous rescue. You want both. You can't avoid the one. Don't give up on the other. You may say, well, I, I, I can't pray. I, I'm so grieved right now. I, I am so angry and disappointed with God. I, I can't pray. Let that be your opening sentence. Satan comes to steal from us. You make sure that prayer is the last thing that he tries to pry out of your hands. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. I believe that God always answers our prayer. Uh, Sometimes he says yes right now. It's like when my kids ask for ice cream and I'm just in the mood for ice cream. Yes, right now, let's go. You pray in the morning, you've received your request by the end of the day. Those are beautiful times. Sometimes God says yes, but later. You can't have it now for some reason, but I'm going to answer later. Sometimes God says yes, but different. You get the thing that you were asking for. You just get it in a different way. And often in my experience, the different is always better than my original request. Uh, Sometimes it's yes, but in the kingdom. That's how God answered the church's prayers for James. James was released from prison Only he got to skip here. He immediately was with the Lord. Something that you know he desired to do. Painful for the church to experience that loss. Very, very good thing for James. And sometimes God says no. Sometimes he says no according to the book of James because we ask with bad motives. Men, sometimes he says no to us because we're being too harsh with our wives and not loving and kind, not loving her the way that Christ loved the church according to the New Testament. Sometimes he says no, because from our angle, it looks like there's no reason why he wouldn't say yes, but because he's sovereign, he sees all from beginning to end from his angle. He knows a no is better. But he always answers our requests. That's why the church prayed fervently to God for him. You know that the Jerusalem church had to feel powerless. They, they knew Herod had the authority to execute Peter. He had just done it with James. 
they are a marginalized group. They don't have any lobbying power inside of Jerusalem, most likely. They probably felt powerless, and yet they were not without influence. God heard their prayers, and through their prayers, the angel came and freed Peter. There is never a moment in this world, even when you feel powerless, that you are without influence because you have prayer. And we all know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. So if knowing all that we know about prayer, why do we still not pray? Well, you have your own list of excuses. I brought my list of excuses, if you don't mind a little transparency. Excuse number one, because I'm self-reliant. I can do a lot of things myself. It would be like the alert going out to the church of Jerusalem. Peter's been arrested. He's going to be executed. There's a couple of days in here during the holiday Passover that, uh, that we're going to pray and hopefully he'll be freed. Somebody like me would have thought, hey, you know what? I have a connection who has a connection down with Herod in the palace. I'm going to reach out to him or her, see if they can work a little bit, see if we can get this sped along, see if I can put in a good word. Maybe Peter will be released because of my connections. Often we will try to do what we can do and Only after we realize that we have no power, then we'll ask God to do what he can do. But it really should be flipped. We should always ask God first to do what he can do and then do what we can do. Instead of the reverse, but we feel self-reliant. So we don't pray. I don't pray because I've been burned just like you. I really put myself out there last time to God. I needed him to come through and I didn't think he came. So I'm going to be hesitant. Sometimes I'm unbelieving. Just like the church that night that was praying. God was answering their requests. And yet they were this realistic mix of belief and unbelief. When Peter came to their house, they could not believe it. The very thing that they had been asking God to do, it just just was not in their mind that it could happen that fast. That's why the father's words to Jesus when he brought his son to Jesus for healing are so appropriate for us. We should probably start every prayer with it. God, Jesus, I believe and help my unbelief. I am a mix. We don't pray because we're alone. Think about how much different this story would be if a text alert had gone out to the church of Jerusalem. Hey, everybody stop what you're doing and pray for Peter. He's just been released. He could be executed. God, I pray that you would release Peter in Jesus name right now. Then we'd roll over and go back to sleep. Turn on Netflix, check Instagram, cruise through Facebook. But it was the being together that kept them up all night. And when we feel alone, our prayers are small, but when we're together praying, our, our, our faith is built up. They're, they're bigger. We, we rub off on one another. We encourage one another. Those of us who have just experienced answered prayer can encourage those who feel like they've not been heard when we're praying together. We keep one another up. We keep one another alert. And we could go on and on and on and on of why we don't pray. And you have your own list of excuses, but we need to know that those excuses are keeping us from influence. We have a much bigger role to play in this world for the kingdom of God than we believe. But it will not come by might and it will not come by power and it will not come by strategy. It will not become, come by being well-placed at the right moment. It will come through prayer. Then everything else follows prayer. What is a church without prayer? I'm not sure, but it's not good. And I hope we never find out. What is a church with prayer? 
It's supernatural. It's effective. And it's influential. Let's pray.